I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Now, uh, in our last episode, we left you on a bit of a cliffhanger. Yeah. Yeah, we, we mentioned that uh, Gextra Life 3 is happening this year and happening soon. Ooh, that we didn't very have, soon. That we didn't have a date for you. And now, we can tell you, uh, that stream is going to be happening from uh, Sunday the 2nd of September, finishing Monday the 3rd for our American listeners. That is Labor Day. Yes. Yep. Yep. And this year, we ourselves will be diving into the media dimension. Uh, we'll, we'll be able to tell you just what we mean by that coming soon. But I'm really excited for it. Yes. If you've forgotten, or, or if we just picked you up sometime in the last year, uh, Gexter Life is our annual Extra Life stream that uh, the two of us do with some friends of ours. Yeah. We spend 24 hours straight playing video games and interacting with, with the chat audience and yep. having a great, great time, not just for our own benefit. No. But for the benefit of Hurley Children's Hospital in Flint, Michigan. That's right. The entire time we are uh, uh, asking for people to, to donate, to pledge... And uh, this year, we're hoping to raise Mm $35,000, which will bring our cumulative three-year total to $100,000. What on earth? (laughs) That is crazy. Four sick kids in Flint, Michigan. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, look for more information on that, and you should join us. Yeah, I mean, every year this comes up, I I just feel like... You know, all, all those old pledge drives, you know, like, yeah. for giving this amount, you can get a tote bag. I mean, that's pretty much what happens every, like, I don't yeah. know, whenever we remember to talk about prizes. <laughs> well, if you donate, you'll be entered into the drawing to win this thing. But that does bring me to our topic today. Yeah. The public broadcasting system. Ooh. <laughs> that's yes. right. Today's episode is on the history of PBS. PBS so, is great. So I will start by asking you a question, dear. Yeah. Who owns the airwaves? I feel like this is a trick. <laughs> Should be like, the people, but no, the corporations, the public. Yeah, I, the, the, <laughs> by law, by United States federal law, the public owns the airwaves. And the FCC issues licenses to broadcasters determining, you know, what frequencies they have the right to use, at what wattage, and in what uh, uh, geographical areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in exchange for these licenses being given out for free, what? broadcasters have to justify their content and meet certain standards. Everything the, that we quack on this show, you can't say on broadcast television. You yeah. just can't. Uh, and, and participate in the emergency broadcast system. Oh, yes. The <laughs> meh. Yep. Yep. That's, that's part of the deal. Yep. And, you know, other guidelines uh, that, that they must act in the national interest, which is very vague and, and all these things. Now, some of our listeners are in the UK where they have a license fee. There, there's an annual charge to everybody, and that money gets pooled into supporting, among other things, the BBC. Uh-huh. And that that is their public uh, state-owned broadcaster. Yeah. That's not how PBS works here. No. There, there's no TV tax. There's no, no license fee. Uh, and so from the beginning, broadcasts in the U.S. have been commercial, supported by advertising. Yes. 
the FCC isn't even supported by government grants that stem from uh, citizens paying taxes. No. It is funded entirely by the fees it issues to broadcasters that break the rules. <laughs> or, you know, telecom companies that break the rules. They, they do more those, than just broadcast. Those must be, like, giant fees. <laughs> you would hope. But in the, the, the grand scope of everything you could put on television, on radio, there are things that ought to exist, but don't attract advertisers. Yeah. How do you provide the arts, uh, education, uh, insightful documentaries, editorial content, uh, all that sort of stuff that won't sell dish soap? Was... Farmersonly.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is a question, uh, this is a challenge that, w that was risen to uh, in market-to-market -market by public not-for-profit stations across the country, usually attached to universities. Yes. Uh, although some run by independent, non-profit organizations. Uh -huh. Like WTTW Chicago is not attached to University of Chicago or anything. It is its own independent uh, uh, company that owns it. Yeah. In 1961, FCC Chairman Newton Minow, just starting out in his term, called commercial television, quote, a vast wasteland. What? At the, the national... Oh, commercial. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It took at... me a second there, and I was like, wait, no, that's some, most of the time. Yeah. Sometimes. At the, the National Broadcasters Conference. He, yeah. he was not happy with all of the, the vast sea of crass, lowest common denominator game shows and violence and, and uh, comedies about families that no one could possibly relate to. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't a fan of Leave It to Beaver. He might, you know, he didn't mention any shows by name, but yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. The first public television network in the United States was NET, uh, which began its operations in 1952. It was founded by a grant from the Ford Foundation... Uh, the, the Ford family's big philanthropic wing. Uh-huh. And it provided five hours of co programming per day to its member stations. Nice. Those member stations were, like, the, the pre-existing public stations I mentioned, but now they're, they're joined together. They're part of the, this NET network. And uh, NET programming got them the reputation as uh, the University of the Air, because it was... Dull and entertainment-free, <laughs> but very educational. So educational. Yeah. Like, they, they might have an hour-long chat with, with some public figure, you know, somebody from the Treasury Department. That, that could be very enlightening and, and definitely had value, but Gunsmoke is on, so never mind. I'm not... I... No. So after a few years trundling along like that, also getting the, uh, the more derisive nickname, The Bicycle Network... Because the, the story went, that's how they got their tapes from station to station. Was on bicycles. They actually used the mail. They mailed their tapes. Well, I figured, it, but... It, it's a long bicycle run from uh, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, where they were headquartered, to New York. Yeah. Los Angeles. But the, their new president, John H. White, uh, focused on reinventing the network and wanted to make it the fourth network. Ah. This is back in the day when you just had NBC, CBS, and ABC. I mean, you kind of still do for a lot of ways. <laughs> Maybe in a future episode we'll talk about the deregulation 
of the broadcast industry and, and the media conglomerates that, that we have today because of it. Yeah. But that's for that later day. So yeah, John H. White, he, he moved those headquarters, packed up from Ann Arbor, moved to New York City, brushing shoulders with Madison Avenue and, and the other networks. Hey. He secured a $6 million annual grant from the Ford Foundation to fund more original productions nice. that people might want to, you know, look at with their eyeballs sometimes. Yeah. And cultural and public affairs programming became the focus. So that's where he got shows like N.E.T. Playhouse, a series of plays filmed for TV. That's cool. Their first one uh, was Martin Sheen doing uh, a Tennessee Williams play. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, there were other actors and yeah. actresses involved. Uh, but <laughs> that ran for 228 episodes, and uh, it, it won the 1969 Emmy for Outstanding Drama Series. That's cool. I would love a show like that nowadays. Yeah. Which, I mean, they're kind of... the bro Broadway has been creating, like, a database of, like, streaming service of their plays. Yeah. That they do. But that's not the same. No. And it'd be so cool if there was a show that just was a play every mm -hmm. week. I mean, there's so many plays out there that just don't get done. There's so many dang plays out there, folks. Well, yes. But, like, <laughs> you know, so many, like, local theater companies Absolutely. just do the same 30 plays because it's because what people will come see. They, they can get, yeah. NET also uh, bought some broadcast rights for, uh, for BBC and other international productions. Yep. Uh, in 1968, NET brought Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood <gasps> to a national audience. Mr. Rogers. It was originally a product of WQED in Boston, the station that John H. White ran before he got the job as NET president. Nice. There you go. It was similarly the original home of Sesame Street. For most of its time. <laughs> Well, NET is not PBS. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. It's it's a clear antecedent. Yes. If, if that's not obvious before, let me just say it yeah, straight out. Yeah, that's why I'm like, oh, well, like, it's pretty close. It's pretty close, but it is a different body entirely. Uh, they, they also had NET Journal, a, a hard-hitting documentary series that aired programs like The Poor Pay More. Ah. Uh, the, the documentary version of Black Like Me, the, the famous book about a journalist who uh, underwent cosmetic uh, uh, procedures to travel the, the South as a black man. Uh-huh. He took a lot of uh, melanin pills, did a lot of tanning bed business. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was the 60s. Yep. I mean, it, it was abs it was really useful ethnographic work, but I'm not sure it would get past a, an IRB these days. Yeah, You're right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh huh. <laughs> Another notable NET Journal episode uh, was called "Inside North Vietnam." Oh, yeah, that's where you went for the good stuff. So, uh, some of their affiliates, many of their viewers, complained about uh, the editorial stances in things like NET Journal. Uh, the Ford Foundation started to reevaluate their support. Mm -hmm. Educational broadcasters were, were also looking for public funding at this time uh, and started pressuring uh, the, the White House and, and President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Welcome back to the show, LBJ. It's been a while. So, so in this environment, 
1965, the Carnegie Corporation, mm -hmm. another uh, uh, philanthropic uh, effort founded by a, a, someone who had more money than God, yes. uh, formed a 15-member commission to study public television, and they made a report. In 1967, they submitted their findings to Congress. The Carnegie Commission on Educational Television, television has reached the conclusion that a well-financed and well-directed educational television system substantially oh, no yeah yes yeah, substantially larger and far more pervasive and effective than that which now exists in the United States must be brought into being if the full needs of the American public are to be served it's a really long sentence <laughs> This is the central conclusion of the commission, and all of its recommendations are designed accordingly. It goes on for many, many pages, but that's the first paragraph. I hope their sentences are smaller. <laughs> Carnegie wasn't paying these people for brevity. <laughs> so the commission's suggestions were, uh, first, increasing the number and quality of educational television stations, which basically means providing a lot of cash yeah. from one place or another. Uh, the creation of a corporation for public television to receive government and private funds and disperse them to stations to support the creation of programming, which will then be made available to all stations to use if they choose. Mm -hmm. uh, the corporation should support independent production centers and use NET as one of them. Mm -hmm. There are six more you know, bullet point recommendations on the goals that the corporation would meet in developing programming, talent, and infrastructure. Uh, they recommended funding would come from a 2 to 5% excise tax on the manufacture of televisions. Oh. They also recommended a further set of studies down the road to show the impact of educational television on formal and informal education. Basically, do NET watchers do better in school? Or mm -hmm. at work. Uh, are they better citizens? Uh-huh. So Congress accepted this report, and it became the guide in drafting the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967. Yeah. Now, this study was about television. The energy, momentum, and funding were, were all lining up for television. Uh-huh. But public radio existed. It was following the same trajectory. Independent... Uh, usually university-tied stations yeah. providing public interest programming. Mm -hmm. And it had the same needs. It was coming up uh, on the same, like, we, we can't compete with uh, commercial TV. They're outspending us. It's flashier. And we we can't pay people to produce the shows we need. Yeah. So the Public Broadcasting Act was first introduced as the Public Television Act. That was the name of the legislation. Just like uh, the Carnegie report suggested, it was going to create the Corporation for Public Television. Uh-huh. Radio lobbyist Jerry Sandler begged his counterparts on the TV side to just change every use of the word television to broadcasting. It's just that simple. Yeah. Just just to keep the door open for radio. And so his, his uh, TV lobbyist counterpart just said straight to him, you can't change the scenario. At this point, broadcasting doesn't have the right sound, you know, <laughs> which is how you would expect media lobbyists to talk, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Now enjoy this fine Paul Mall. It's the, it's the late 60s. There you go. Uh, then from the, the floor of the Senate, Senator Robert Griffin suggested the bill's name be changed 
to the, the public broadcasting act. And Sandler pounced. Oh yeah, I'm sure he did. He he printed up a bunch of tiny, or, or I guess typed up a bunch of tiny slips of paper, and each one just said "and radio" on them. And he got the text of the bill, and every time he saw the word television, he scotch taped in "and radio" <laughs> every single time. And then he photocopied those sheets. And that became the final text of the bill. Amazing. The text that President Johnson signed into law on November 7th, 1967, uh-huh. had and radio in a completely different font. <laughs> with tape. With, like, yeah, the, the shadow of photocopied scotch tape <laughs> all through it every single time. Amazing. Now that uh, uh, all-nighter arts and crafts project is why we have NPR. Yeah. That is why it exists as an educational podcast. Yeah. Our single greatest competition. (laughs) (laughs) Go down, NPR. Yeah. So uh, that act was supported uh, inside Congress by by a number of of legislators, of course. The House of Representatives voted more than two to one for it. Uh, But outside, you had uh, people like Fred Rogers Mm -hmm. and Robert Conley, who would be a founding member of NPR and create uh, the show All Things Considered. Ah. President Johnson cited into law November 7th, 1967, and said to the press, It announces to the world that our nation wants more than just material wealth. Our nation wants more than a chicken in every pot. We in America have an appetite for excellence, too. While we work every day to produce new goods and to create new wealth, we want most of all to enrich man's spirit. That is the purpose of this act. So, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting now exists. Yeah. Which you may recognize from the end of every PBS program brought to you by, by the Corporation for, for Public, Public Broadcasting. Broadcasting. There you go. Also, uh, like, the Carnegie Foundation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a privately owned, nonprofit corporation established by federal law. The one we just talked about. Yeah. To meet goals set by the government and funded entirely by government grants. Mm-hmm. Now, also contained in the Public Broadcasting Act, 95% of its budget goes directly to programming, stations, and community services. Uh-huh. That last 5% is how they keep the lights on in their offices and, and pay the CPP's members. Uh-huh. 95% is going to making programming and the stations that bring you the programming. So that that's its job, to support programming and broadcasting, but it didn't have any stations or studios to do that. Yeah. So they turned to NET to help them in their mission. This lasted for mm, two years. Oh. The NET's programming had alienated a lot of people, including the incoming Nixon administration. Oh. So in order for the, the CPB to fulfill their mission... They had to build a new network to replace NET. Another reason NET uh, had to go, at least according to prevailing wisdom at the time, was that there was a a perceived conflict of interest uh, between NET, the producer of content, and NET, the the network distributor of content. It seems to work for all the commercial networks, though. Yeah. Whatever. Okay. Fine. Sure. The, the first threat to this new system, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and, and all of its goals, came in 1968 
before PBS was even founded yet. Oh. When President Nixon announced his intent to cut the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's budget by half. It hadn't even started yet. The, the corporation had, but PBS had not. But, like, yeah. come on. They, they just came into existence a year ago. Let them try, Dick. Let them try. Such a whack. Such a Richard. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Now, now, this led to the congressional hearings that uh, we've even had people write in to us yes. about in past emails, where Fred Rogers appeared before a Senate subcommittee as one of many people giving testimony about the, the value and uh, mission of public broadcasting. Mm-hmm. But his testimony wasn't about balance sheets, uh, even though he did mention offhand that his show's entire budget would only make two minutes of animation. Yeah. But f- he, he argued for the mission of his show, and by extension, the mission of public television, and, and with the, the clear implication that his work would be impossible in a for-profit environment. Uh-huh. One quote from, from this, uh, just six minutes of Fred Rogers basically doing a Mr. Rogers Neighborhood segment Yeah, for senators. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's much more dramatic that two men could be working out their feelings of anger, much more dramatic than showing something of gunfire. Ooh, deep Mr. Rogers. <laughs> mm-hmm. I always thought he'd be a good one to do an episode for, but now yes. there's that documentary there's that out, documentary. and I'm like, someone else has done it, and it apparently brings everyone to tears, so who am I to try to do better? They scooped us. It's fine. <laughs> it's only fair. You'll never get a Fred Rogers-specific episode from us because of that just, documentary. Just go listen to Jim Henson again. Yeah. I. That's the reason I'm also not spending much focus on Sesame Street, because we, we covered it then. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but th- this... A senator who's really hard-nosed and uh, didn't want to be there much just talked about getting goosebumps and said, fine, you earned your $22 million. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the CPB appropriation was increased from Nixon's proposed $9 million to $22 million. Nice. And in that environment, the following year, 1969, PBS was founded uh, and served primarily as a distributor. Mm-hmm. Unlike commercial networks, member stations have wide latitude in setting their own schedules. Yes. I, If I'm here in Chicago, I'm watching NBC, I know I'm getting the same thing at 8 and 9 and 10. Somebody in Los Angeles, somebody in Florida. Well, except for time zones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not the case with PBS. No. Because WTTW and WQED and uh, any other call signs for a PBS station you want to put in, they decide what they show on 9 o'clock at a Tuesday. Yes. And while PBS might be trying to maintain a brand identity uh, and really, really encourage that you show Masterpiece at such and such a time because everybody wants to see what Sherlock is going to get up to. And then be very disappointed about it as the seasons go on. (laughs) It's still your local station's call. Yes. Yeah. There, there are definitely certain ones that, like, when Downton Abbey was going. For sure. Like, yep, for we're sure. all showing it on Sunday. <laughs> same time. We don't want people to come, like, at us with hat pins because <laughs> they're mad. So they get their Downton Abbey fix. And, and PBS The Network produces nothing. Yeah. 
Many of its shows are products of individual stations that are then licensed through PBS to distribute to the entire network. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the network's founding, the member stations took a vote to prevent PBS from becoming a producer of programming. They wanted this democratic, decentralized system. Mm -hmm. Now, that uh, Carnegie report recommended having two or more uh, producers, and NET would be one of them. Uh So uh, the first director of programming was like, if two is better than one, then three is even better. And four is better than, wait a minute, let's have eight. (laughs) So uh, he he nominated eight stations to, to become incubators for the whole system. The individual stations rebelled against that, too. Like, no, Uh we want to have a piece. And so now everybody can. But the reality is that the bigger stations have the the funds, the means, the resources to to do that in practical terms. Yeah. The smaller stations are probably the ones that make some of the... Because nowadays with the way TV is set up and you have, like, those extra, like, stations. Mm Mm-hmm. Digital stations. The digital stations. Yes. I think... That's opened up a lot of the smaller ones, probably making some of those like craft shows that air yeah. on the extra digital station. Like uh, the, the Create Network? Yes. That is not a PBS product. That is a rival. Really? Uh, yep. That, that is a rival network. Of, I mean, I say rival, like I don't think they're trying to like come at each other with knives, but it is a separate uh, uh, network. That I believe also gets Corporation for Public Broadcasting uh, support. Yeah, but it, it is like But a, it is a separate entity from PBS, yeah. But doing like the same thing, mm-hmm. probably. And some... And from the way it looks for much smaller stations with smaller budgets. Yes, and a number of its shows, like say America's Test Kitchen, yeah. are licensed to PBS stations proper. Yeah. And Rick Steves, I think, is, Rick so Rick is from another network, but also gets licensed to PBS stations. Cool. Here's a quick rundown of some of the the notable things that you might think were made by PBS as a national entity, but are actually from local stations. Arthur comes from GBH in Boston. Arthur! Yep. They also make Masterpiece and Nova and Antiques Roadshow. Dang, Boston! Boston makes a lot of of these shows. I mean, the Antiques Roadshow in Boston makes complete sense. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That makes absolute sense. Well, it also makes sense that NewsHour and uh, a lot of the other news programming comes from WETA in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Uh, Our local station, WTTW here in Chicago, uh, produced Ebert Presents at the Movies. Yep. Lamb Chop's Play Along. Lamb Chop! Where kids come to play along. I love Lamb Chop. Uh, The Frugal Gourmet, which I watched so much as a kid. I don't know if I remember that one. It was a cooking show, as you might guess. But yeah. I don't know if it was licensed as widely as, say, the McLaughlin Group from WTTW. <laughs> I don't know if I know that one either. The McLaughlin Group was a, a news, current events, roundtable oh, talk show. Okay. That yeah, I wouldn't was, know that. I wouldn't pay attention to that one. <laughs> that had a series of really funny parodies uh, in the Dana Carvey years oh. of Saturday Night Live. Okay. Yeah. And Word World. <laughs> Word World! Came from WTTW. Welcome to the place. Where words come alive, let's build a word. Word world. Word world. We've got friends of every size. Why aren't you singing with me? Because my leg fell asleep horribly. (laughs) Monkey, I'm so tickly. (laughs) I love word world. No. And that 
if you're not familiar, this was definitely not a show from my childhood. This was a show from the past, like, I don't know, like 10 years ago. My do early you, 20s. Do you want to tell the story? I was working nights. You were working, so like... my schedule was effed up. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so if I was working the overnights, it was, like, 11 to, like, 6 a.m. It was on the break room at, like, you know, 3 a.m. <laughs> and then I told you about it, and then we started watching it together. Word World is an adorable show. It's so good. Where the, the, the denizens of Word World build words... Out of letters, uh-huh. and then the letters they make the words, the they become the thing. Yeah. So, so like you, all the- you collect an H-O-U-S and E, and you squish them together, and a house appears. Yes. Yes. And like all the little characters, like if they turn sideways, you see the letters that make their bodies. Yeah. So like dog, you, you see that he's made of the let- words, the letters to make dog. And it's just very cute, and the characters are so good, like <laughs> sheep. Yeah. Yeah. And I like shark. You mean Sahark? Sahark? Duck's good friend Sahark? Yeah. Yeah, that's the episode where Duck learns that S and H make the sh sound. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. It's so funny. <laughs> I don't think they make it anymore. No, they don't. Word, Word World was discontinued. That's really sad. They they ran out of... Uh, of words? Words. They did all the words. <laughs> they did all the words. I highly doubt that. In later seasons when they were doing like... Some some eight syllable business. <laughs> the preschool audience was really confused. Yeah, PBS also continues that uh, uh, NET tradition of licensing international programs for the American audience. Like we mentioned, Downton Abbey. Yep, huge hit for them. Yeah, Are You Being Served and the Red Green Show were oh. big parts. Oh my gosh, the Red Green Show! Big parts of my childhood. <laughs> Red Green Show is a huge part of my childhood. I don't know why. <laughs> But it was. I do love that Miss Slocum. Oh, boy. So, yeah, how, how do these local podunk stations connected to, to your city college make such beloved and acclaimed shows? Grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Yeah. And the first PBS president set up their offices in Washington to be right by the CPB and by, you know... The people controlling the funding, or at least controlling the funding of the body that funds them. Yes. <laughs> so now that PBS exists in our History of PBS episode, we're going to take a quick break and come right back. Okay. Everybody. Hello. So uh, when we last left off, there were not one, but two educational networks operating not-for-profit in the United States. Yeah. That's right. NET is still going strong, and they were sticking to their editorial guns uh, with programs like Who Invited Us? Uh, capitalized Us for U.S. It's very clever. Oh. This was a documentary look at the role of the CIA and private economic interests in determining U.S. foreign policy, including who we invade and what we do there. Dang, NET! And one called Banks and the Poor, which is exactly what it sounds like, you know, the way the banking industry deals with poor people, including a hidden camera segment in a loan office where a weeping woman's house was seized over a handful of dollars. Ah. So again, 
Nixon's in town. This is yeah. not, not exactly popular with uh, the powers that be. So the Ford Foundation and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting forced them to merge with a local station in New York City and cease operation as a network unto itself on threat of uh, the two of them ending all funding. Uh-huh. So that is why New York City's uh, PBS affiliate is known as WNET. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh, WNET produces programs for, for national consumption, like Nature. Okay. And Cyber Chase. What's Cyber Chase? Wait, is that the... That the, was a kid's show, That right? was a kid's cartoon, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember that. That was one of the more popular uh, PBS kids' cartoons of its era. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about some other notable shows okay. that I either have or have not mentioned. There better be some that I expect on here. Yes. yes. Okay, Th- good. These are in order of premiere date. Uh, so Nova, uh-huh. a series of 60-minute science documentaries uh, running from 1974 to present, uh, with 851 episodes and counting, uh, inspired by a-, a similar series on BBC Two called Horizons. A lot of the episodes, especially in the early years, were Horizons episodes with the narration re-recorded. <laughs> I mean, this is something that uh, the PBS show Nature does. They, they yeah. take, like, Richard Attenborough documentaries. That's David true. Attenborough, I can't remember which one's which. <laughs> which one is John Hammond and which one is the real uh, animal man? <laughs> and then have, like, Oprah redub it. That's that's the end of that sentence that I sidebarred from. I guess it makes sense in a way, because, like, they get some interesting footage that, how are you going to film that again? Right, right. Uh, Nova has won four Peabody Awards and 16 Emmys and going strong. American Playhouse. This is something you'd be interested in, except it ended in 1993. Didn't you mention this one earlier? You mentioned a different Playhouse thing. Yes, the NET version. Ah. American Playhouse picked up where they left off in 1982 through 1993. Uh, 13 seasons of plays filmed for television. Uh, Laura Linney, Eric Roberts, Ben Stiller, Megan Mullally, and other celebrities of today had big breaks from a play they were in being featured on American Playhouse. Yeah. Other uh, notable stars that were already famous when, when they showed up include, you know, John Malkovich, James Earl Jones, Anne Bancroft. Hey. Uh, Mandy Patinkin. Nice. Glenda Jackson, current uh, Tony Award winner and former uh, uh, member of British Parliament. Yes. Yes. Uh, Dick Van Dyke. Aww. Basically, any notable stage actor over those 12 years. Yeah. They probably showed up in American Playhouse. Nice. They also brought Into the Woods into people's homes, the original Broadway cast. Aww. I was listening to uh, that production while I was doing the outlining for this episode. Yeah. I just wanted to mention that. The last uh, thing they aired under the American Playhouse banner, not their final episode, but the last thing they aired was a rerun from their 11th season a behind-the-scenes look at Angels in America. Ooh. Ooh. That, that's how they decided to end it. That's, that's a good way of ending it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I screwed up my chronological order a little bit, because this old house debuted in oh 1979. I watched so much of this old house. And it's still going. 
is a, a home improvement how to DIY style show. Yep. Where they would, over the course of a season, renovate a house. I knew so much about two by fours. <laughs> and that, like, what was I going to do with that knowledge? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing at the age of seven. It, it's had three spin offs, two of which are PBS programs. One was for A&D. Oh. Among its many awards, the, the carpenter, Norm Abram. Yes. Was recognized by the American Academy of Ophthalmology for his dedication to eye safety. Yes. <laughs> yes. That makes me so happy. Uh, she's always like, got to get her eye protection. Mm-hmm. Bob Vila, uh, the name most associated with this old house, mm-hmm. left the show because he started doing TV ads for companies other than the sponsors of this old house. Uh. So so they fired him to keep their sponsorship. Yeah. But Norm Abram has been with the show the whole time. My God. Cosmos, A Personal Voyage, uh, another show near and dear to my heart, was Carl Sagan's 13-episode series of, of science documentaries uh, that aired in 1980. His goal wasn't just to educate the world about current science, mm-hmm. you know, and make it uh, interesting and get people talking about what we know and, and what we're working on about the way everything works, mm-hmm. but also to share a worldview that relied on it, a, a perspective on humanity's place and purpose. Yeah. Which I think is the, the greatest gift that Carl Sagan left us. Yeah. There was also a, a companion book that went uh, more into depth and had a bit more research in it, which is on one of these shelves somewhere. Yeah, I think it's in the bedroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is PBS's second highest rated program in the U.S. to date. Nice. And it's single highest rated uh, in global audience. Nice. What's their top highest? We're going to get to it? We're going to get to it. After we talk about Frontline, ah. the investigative journalism show that's been running from 1983 to present, and has won every award offered in journalism at least once. We're talking 75 Emmys and 18 Peabody Awards. Dang. At least 13 people uh, have been released from prison after Frontline examined their evidence and and revealed that they were falsely accused. Wow. Uh, Following the September 11th attacks, the White House called up the Frontline office to ask for a copy of their 1998 episode on Osama bin Laden and what he's been up to. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. There are state and federal laws, OSHA regulations, and UN resolutions that are all direct results of frontline investigations. Dang. Good going, frontline. So to answer your question a little belated, 1990 brought uh, the world the Civil War. Oh, that makes sense. Ken Burns' nine-part documentary, which aired on five consecutive nights. Nine one-hour parts. Okay. Four nights had a a double feature. One night just had the one hour. Yeah. Total of nine. It became the image of a documentary in our culture. Yeah. Like, if you ever want to... Kept Ken Burns and, you know, work for ever since then. Yeah, from there, baseball, World War II, just did Vietnam. Uh Uh-huh. Done it all. But, yeah, if you ever want to do something that says documentary to the general public... 
what do you have? You have somebody reading a letter to my dearest Jessica as, yep. as some horn is playing slowly <laughs> and, and the camera pans over still black and white images. Yes. It's all from the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, it won over 40 awards. Oh, my God. And is the reason everyone's dad is obsessed with Stonewall Jackson. Oh, that explains so much for so many I mean, my dad, my dad wasn't. But that explains so much about, like, everyone else's dad. Every dad in America. My dad liked this old house. But <laughs> it makes so much sense about, like, your dad, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. everyone else's dads. <gasps> Next is one that I think has less uh, of a place in history. But it's just I a see your notes. personal part of, of my heart. Ghost Rider. I love Ghost Rider! A 74-episode run over three seasons, starting in 1992. I have a Ghost Rider, like, pen. Like, it literally just says Ghost Rider on mm-hmm. it. With, on, on the lanyard? On the lanyard. Yeah. It never wrote. Which like, when I got it, like it a... was like the ink was all messed up. But I, it's still in my desk. In my mom's house. I had, I'm had. i pretty sure I had one as a kid, yeah. Yeah. I never got rid of it, even though it never wrote. <laughs> so this merchandise refers to a, a mystery series. that uh, Five or so kids in Brooklyn who would solve mysteries with the help of a ghost that wrote. Uh, the, the ghost could manipulate letters and words to communicate. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'll just remember, you know, the, the like, five-part story about the the kids getting trapped in a subway tunnel and the homeless Vietnam vet street poet. Yeah. Or the time travel one. Or famously, the internet hacking story. Yeah. Which was Julia Stiles' first acting credit. Yeah, she's a hacker. (laughs) It's so good. I I I don't think I ever realized there were actually that many episodes. Mm -hmm. It completely makes sense. I mean, every story was four parts, except the two that were five. Yeah. So those 74 episodes, it's a much smaller number of stories they told. Yeah, but that's a lot. But still, yeah. And then... Well, such a great kid show at the time, too. Right. For so many reasons. Set aside the dialogue in the hacker episode. Oh, yeah. You're still teaching kids about, like, bulletin board systems and the way modems work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. But <laughs> well, from what I remember, it was a pretty diverse group of kids. Yes, um, with a diverse group of family back, like life that they came from. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the one kid lived with his grandma. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was I... it was very subtle in a way, but it was a lot of like stuff that. A show I really love about that that was for commercial television. Mm-hmm. Hey Arnold. Yeah. 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 <laughs> also set in New York City. There you go. Uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy. I was supposed to meet him. Really? Yeah. So I was homeschooled, mm-hmm. and one of the homeschool conventions we went to, like, he was supposed oh. to come to, and, like, do I a bet, thing. I bet PBS was a huge resource for homeschoolers. It was the same, uh, homeschool conference that had the Ghost Raider thing, which was where I got the pen from, actually. I, it is, as we'll get to, a huge resource for, uh, traditional schooling. Yeah. <laughs> um, but something happened, and he couldn't actually be there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i was very sad but they still did like a bill nye the science guide event mm-hmm. well that's good yeah uh the show ran for 100 episodes debuting in 1993 it was a rapid paced science education show inspired by nye's background in sketch comedy actually 
his original pitch was Mr. Wizard meets Pee Wee's Playhouse. Nice. Now, in 1990, there was another law uh, called the Children's Television Act that required all full-power TV stations to broadcast at least three hours per week of educational children's programs. Uh-huh. And so Bill Nye the Science Guy got, got bundled in a syndication package that a lot of stations bought up in order to meet those requirements and therefore became the first program to simultaneously air on both public and commercial stations. Ah, that explains a lot. So your, your Bill Nye memories might be from, I don't know, your CBS affiliate or your, yeah. your local independent commercial channel. Yeah. Arthur, which we mentioned earlier. Having fun isn't hard when you've got a library card. <laughs> it's true. Also taught me how to spell aardvark. How's that? A-A-R-D-V-A-R-K. Still got it. Yep. <laughs> uh, it debuted in 1996 and is still running. They're creating new stuff still? Yes. Oh my god. They've recast the kid that voices Arthur so many times. Well, yeah, like... Because <laughs> his voice keeps so changing. So like, oh man, like, of course they've had to do that stuff. I, rather than casting grown women to play young boys like, say, Bart Simpson, uh-huh. they cast young boys, and so that you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get them. new ones. <laughs> uh, it, it follows an anthropomorphic aardvark named Arthur and his life in the third grade, mm-hmm. uh, and, and his friends and family. It's won a Peabody and four daytime Emmys. It focuses on showing the audience other kids having troubles they can relate to. And like ways to overcome them mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, cope with these challenges, and also encouraging them to read books. Yeah, like yeah, the the episode where our, uh, they learn about getting a library card mm-hmm. is the same episode where Arthur, uh, in his frustration, punches his sister. <laughs> yes, which is where the Twitter meme comes from. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, they also always have that, like, the school section between the two episodes where it's, like, a classroom and it always yeah. has to do with some reading thing and project that they worked on. Yeah. Um, Those are filmed in Boston schools. Ah. Because it is a is. production. While the uh, production of the animation is done uh, in both Canada and um, Asia. I, I think, oh. I can't remember if it's Hong Kong or Korea. Interesting. But yes, yes. I had had a weird thought. I was like, dang, Arthur reminds me a lot of Riverdale (laughs) in, like, dynamics of friend groups and stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I I want an Arthur-Riverdale, like, parody thing. Arthur parodies a lot of other shows and movies. Yes, but I want... want, there's a chance. Just keep on. Someone out there, go take Arthur Animation... And figure out ways to make me some Riverdale episodes. It can't be any weirder than the way they turned uh, Matt Damon into uh, oh, a uh, hamster some, that or was something. Creepy stuff. Because the <laughs> thing is, is like it's like they couldn't decide whether he should be human or an animal, and they just did both. It's very bad. The, the last show I want to uh, talk about that. Just like screams PBS to me. Oh yeah, is Antiques Roadshow? Oh yes, I I love me some Antiques Roadshow. Which of these is is the most recent, debuting in 1997? Again, still running to this day. Oh yes, it, it is. And and what they do is they set up uh, events 
uh, across the country where people can bring their antiques and accredited appraisers will take a look at them and tell them, well, uh, this has an insurance value of such and such. If you took this to uh, uh, auction in today's market, you could expect something in this range. Uh-huh. And it's, it's, a, it's a way of actively learning about the antique market, I suppose, which is a way of passively learning about the history of things, of, yeah. of manufacture, of art, of uh, wars, Cultures. when you're talking about, like, Civil War swords. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the amount of, like, like manufacturing, how you learn about, like, fakes and stuff. Yes, yes. I love watching them bust fakes. It's the Oh, best. yeah, because it's always someone who's, like, so convinced they have, like, their meal ticket for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, actually, no, this was mass produced in the hundred thousands. And, yeah. If you uh, see this watermark that says Sears. <laughs> but I love the people who are like, oh, I bought this for like $20 at a garage sale. And I don't know. I think it could maybe be worth some, maybe like a couple hundred dollars. And they're like, this is worth $300,000. <laughs> Or or else it's like, yeah, my grandma always my my grandma never used these plates and she said they and were grandpa special. hated them. We all thought she was just like putting on airs. Actually your plates were owned by Queen Victoria. I'm gonna stop putting these in the dishwasher. <laughs> uh but a, a fun Antiques Roadshow story I want to share is uh the 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 Ballad of Russell Pritchard III. Oh, my. He was an expert in Civil War uh, memorabilia. Uh-huh. You know, the history, the arms, the letters, etc., uniforms, what have you. And he was brought on as an appraiser because people have that stuff. And so he, he built this reputation and people would, like, look up in the Yellow Pages. Oh, Russell Pritchard, he's got such and such a store. And they try to get in contact with him. Like, I've got these letters. I've got these patches. Mm-hmm. And he would use this reputation to defraud people. He got up to 16 years in prison. Mm. And uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. Oh my. See, the way the scam would work was uh, him and his partner, George Juno, who was also an appraiser on the show. Mm-hmm. would get calls from people with their cool stuff and then uh, run a number of different scams. One of the most common was saying that they were uh, uh, buyers working on behalf of the National Civil War Museum and like, your great-grandfather, it's so great that you're honoring his memory by keeping this in the family, but this is an important piece of history. And if we buy it, we can guarantee it'll have a... a prominent place in the National Civil War Museum, and you can share that with all of America. Mm-hmm. And so, like, okay, I will give you this this piece of our family's history for $80,000. Uh-huh. And family packs up $80,000 and thinks, hey, next time we're on vacation, let's go see that sword. Meanwhile, the two of them are selling it to private collectors or other museums or wherever else, for $800,000. Yeah. They were not representatives of the National Civil War Museum in any capacity. Yeah. Straight up lie. Oh, my God. And also stuff like saying, oh, I'm sorry, but you've you've been tricked. These uniforms, are uh, we, we send them for analysis. They're replicas. They don't have any value. 
Meanwhile, I'm going to sell this to a, a museum because I lied mm. and pocket a couple thousand bucks. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. It was bad. I mean, as soon as any of these uh, accusations came to light, they were cut from the show. But still. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's move out of uh, the programming and back to the history of the organization, shall we? Okay. Okay. So in 1977, the Carnegie Corporation decided, you know what? Time to do a sequel. Uh, Let's have a second report to study how this new public television system that our first report was uh, in a great deal responsible for was developing. Uh Uh-huh. So in 1979, they presented their findings in uh, uh, a second report. In less than a dozen years, among the most turbulent and... Pivotal in our history, public broadcasting has managed to establish itself as a national treasure. From the backwaters of an industry long dominated by commercial advertising, the public system has come into its own. Millions now watch and hear, applaud and criticize a unique public institution which daily enters their homes with programs that inform, engage, enlighten, and delight. In that sense, the ideal has been realized. Public broadcasting has made a difference. Now, that was part of the introduction, and that's basically the spoonful of sugar before the medicine has to go down. Uh-huh. So, like, clearly they found that uh, the PBS network and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting were producing, like they say, a national treasure. Yes. But they saw it as a system with so many forces pulling on it in different directions that it was doomed to fail. Uh-huh. It, it was unsustainable. So it had further uh, uh, recommendations to overhaul the system as follows. The the CPB should be replaced with the Public Telecommunications Trust to manage stations' operations and facilities. And the trust would contain a semi-autonomous branch called the Program Services Endowment, which would underwrite programs and services. Mm -hmm. Basically separating those two functions into... Two separate, but kind of the same body, with uh, a different oversight structure than the CPP had then and continues to have to this day. Yes. Total funding should increase to $1.2 billion annually by 1985, half of which from the federal government and half from other sources. Uh-huh. Uh, state governments, business sponsors, and of course, viewers like you. Yes. Uh, so that, that would be... $600 million from the federal government. Yeah. The, the federal government and public broadcasting should work together to cover at least 90% of Americans within five to seven years, uh, which is to say somewhere between 1984 to 1986. The trust should use audience measurement data to ensure the system's goals are being met. Mm-hmm. Now, that report, unlike the earlier report, had little to no effect on the public broadcasting system. Oh. People read it and were like, great report. Nope. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, audience measurement data is being used. Public broadcasting is uh, uh, available for more than 90% of Americans now. Yeah. But obviously the CPB still exists, and funding has never reached that Goal Not in 1985 and not today. That's why we have pledge drives. Yeah. Yeah. It is pledge time right now at WTTW. Uh, And when budgets get cut, and not even cut, but, you know, just lag behind growing costs, Mm -hmm. you need more pledges. So you need more drives. 
Uh, some stations are now running pledge drives 10 weeks out of the year. Wow. That's like 20% of the time. That makes sense with how, like, I feel like when we were kids, it was like twice a year. Yes. For like a week. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, didn't we just do this like a couple weeks ago? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so a, a pledge drive is when when your, your programs are interrupted by people at the station trying to say a lot of the things we've been saying. Yeah. Uh, about the, the mission of your PBS station, the value it provides to the community, and that you can help. Yes. And if you donate $40 today, you can get a CD of what you're listening to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because pledge drives don't just interrupt those programs, but the entire schedule. Yeah. Regular programming is put on the back burner with shows meant to capture their, their target donors, whoever Lots those are. Lots of Celtic Thunder fans. Yeah, which in a lot of cases, for a lot of uh, uh, station managers, that means baby boomers. Yep. Uh, so you get... Susie Orman and other self-help authors and gurus. You get some retrospectives and rerun specials. Yeah. And concerts. Yep. If, a lot if of you, concerts. If you uh, see that your, your PBS affiliate is showing a, a concert that sounds really interesting, it's, it's pledge time. It's, yeah. It caught us last it night. Did. <laughs> it did. And then we're like, oh, it's pledge time. They, they were showing uh, Leonard Cohen, uh, the, the Tower of Song, this tribute uh, concert following his death, where a whole bunch of Leonard Cohen songs were sung, each one by a different guest performer. Mm -hmm. Katie Lang killed it. Elvis yes. Costello was great as always. Mm -hmm. But of course, it was, it's pledge time. Yes. The, the pledge drive dude, man, he was hyped. <laughs> he was wired. How long have you been there? <laughs> I kind of want to call right now, just so maybe you calm down. Yeah, yeah. Can you put that guy on fo the phone? I promise I'll become a sustaining donor. Please, please. Let me just, like, talk him down right now. I feel like he just needs some calming meditation. Let me let me put on this uh, uh, three hours of relaxing baby music video from YouTube. <laughs> Today, there are 350 PBS member stations. Uh, they are broadcasting over every U.S. state and territory. PBS antennas are even part of emergency response systems. Mm -hmm. Houston's PBS affiliate used their, their infrastructure to keep first responders connected during the response to Hurricane Harvey. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2012, PBS Digital Studios launched, which is a network of YouTube channels covering different topics. Uh, these are shows like Crash Course, It's Okay to Be Smart, The Dearly Missed Idea Channel. I really liked Idea Channel. <laughs> Space Time and Eons, among others. I like Eons a lot. That's a natural history show. Oh. They, they talk about dinosaurs. Ooh. Mm -hmm. I like dinosaurs. 80% of American households with a television watch PBS, uh, with a viewership that, that demographically matches uh, the country and uh, educational income and racial categories. Mm -hmm. so, so your uh, stereotype of a PBS viewer as, say, Niles Crane is not necessarily accurate. No. <laughs> except Niles Crane is an American. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is the number six broadcast and cable network in household ratings, with a primetime viewership larger than uh, channels that are considered more part of, say, the national conversation, like uh, Bravo. 
Yeah. Or commercial educational channels that uh, you might consider its direct, you know, uh, competitors like TLC, A and E, the Discovery Channel. TLC is not a learning thing anymore. It once was. It, it once, when we were kids, mm-hmm. it very much actually resembled PBS programming. What they showed, and then now it's just like Honey Boo Boo, Honey Boo Boo, yeah. and. Uh, a marrying this person I've never met and <laughs> fundamentalist Christians. Yeah. Would you uh, call commercial television a vast wasteland? TLC is now. You might be qualified to run the FCC, I guess. <laughs> now, 64% of all uh, children watch PBS Kids programming. It is the number one kids network for poor families and for single mother families. In fact, if you want to talk about demographics, uh, uh, African-American children and Hispanic children watch PBS at higher rates than the national average. Yeah. Uh, PBS Kids is number one in school readiness compared to all children's TV networks, and parents credit it for teaching positive behavior. Yeah. Uh, PBS Kids closes the math achievement gap between poor children and their classmates, and in classrooms that integrate PBS materials, student performance on uh, content assessments showed significant improvement, increasing by eight percentage points across subject areas. Wow. Uh, PBS and its member stations are rated number one in public trust among nationally known institutions. There, there was this recent survey that listed a bunch of institutions and asked a whole lot of people how they would rate their trust. 42% of responders gave said, said that PBS uh, was trusted a great deal. Mm-hmm. Number two was 24%, and that was uh, commercial broadcast TV, oh. compared to 22% for courts of law. <laughs> 15% for newspapers, and 6% for the United States Congress. Ah. <laughs> who are you going to trust? PBS. Yeah. People who get their news from PBS are more engaged and more informed than people whose primary news source is commercial media. Mm-hmm. On every study that's ever studied it. Yeah. Now, in 2017, a Spectrum auction was held to make low-band airwaves available for wireless broadband and to open up space for future 5G uh, uh, connections. Uh Uh-huh. Now, what this means is anybody who had a license for using those wavelengths for anything was invited to put up their license for, for auction. A number of uh, PBS stations did. Flint's WCMZ, formerly WFUM, my home PBS station growing up. Mine as well. Sold its license for over $14 million and uh, signed off the air on April 23rd of this year. Aww. That makes me sad. In the latest budget appropriation, despite the Trump White House's earlier promise to cut the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's federal funding to zero, they did receive the same $445 million for 2020 that they've been receiving for the past several years. Good. Now, again, $445 million is not the $600 million. No, no it's not. That experts wanted them to receive in 1985. But at least it's not zero. It's not zero. It's not zero. So, dear, what have you learned? That I really love PBS. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I always knew that. Yeah. 
I've rekindled my love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I did not know how PBS actually, like, started. Yeah. I, I love all these, like, statistics for how involved it is in our... Mm-hmm. in the population. I feel like it's one of those things, like, same Quack. that libraries get. Yes. Who uses them? Who goes there? Who watches PBS? Literally everybody. Everyone. Mo- the m- most people. Twice as many people watch PBS as watch uh, TLC. Yeah. Nobody's saying they should go off the air. No. They'd save a lot of money if they cut it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people forget, like, that not everyone has cable. Mm-hmm. And not, like, a lot of people I know nowadays, like, our age, they are choosing not to have any type of, like, TV like that. But PBS is something you can still get. Yes. Network television is something you can still get without having, like, a cable subscription. Mm-hmm. It's free over the airwaves. It blows people's mind. Yes. People, even in our generation, who are born after the advent of cable TV. Yeah. Like, they don't realize. Yeah. People aren't aware. I'm like, it's you can- It's just in the air. You can still watch your local news station and your local PBS. Mm-hmm. You don't have to pay for it. People who are a demographic where they can afford whatever mm-hmm. and can have whatever they want are completely disconnected from the fact that this is all some people have. Yeah. And this is sometimes their only place to get information or to let their kids have TV or get educated. And so, so often, better information. Yes. I mean, the and types of programming. Information that's not selling you toys or fruit by the foot. or <laughs> Yeah. Well, and like many of the kids shows that are on PBS, some of them like you can, you know, watch elsewhere. You can stream them elsewhere nowadays. Mm-hmm. But... Other, like, kids' channels are not showing that type of educational and entertaining content for kids. Mm-hmm. And as you said, without, like, the ads, without the outside interference, mm-hmm. like, you can turn it on and let your kids just watch it and know it will be fine. Yeah. And, and without having to please corporate sponsors, mm-hmm. sorry, Bob Vila, but the the news content is so much more comprehensive. Yes. Okay, just a bit of a sidebar. Profit is the yeah. difference between uh, uh, cash coming in and costs. Yes? Yes. So to increase profit, you want to get more money coming in and cut costs. Yeah. So in an advertising-driven business, more money coming in means more eyeballs. Mm-hmm. What that means is delivering the cheapest news coverage you can make. Yeah. That is also the most eye-grabbing news coverage you can make. Yeah. Which is garbage. Mm-hmm. It's a recipe for garbage. Yeah. So when you take the profit motive out of something as valuable as current events and science education and arts education, you you get it, it's the only way to make it worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we're done. I guess I guess yeah. I think we're I think we did it. So we're going to take a quick break and be back with your letters. Yeah. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. I hope you enjoyed your uh, 10, 15 seconds away. Yeah. Get a cup of coffee in there? Or? Maybe. Okay. Uh, we got some letters for you, though. We do. Kristen wrote in uh, answering a uh, favorite TV channel. Uh, used to be Animal Planet. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Sounds like there's an opening, folks. Get in there. Yeah. Uh, favorite summer event is RTX, uh, which is a convention in Austin, Texas. And favorite fictional detective is Nato Shiragani from Persona 4. Mm-hmm. Did I say it right that time? How should I know? Okay. So thank you for writing in. Thanks, Kristen. Now, Clarentic writes in uh, with an international perspective on this question. Mm-hmm. Now, Australia doesn't have a lot of original uh, uh, programming, <gasps> apparently. I'm pretty sure that's where Ocean Girl and Spellbinder came from. Though I think it was an Australian-Polish, like, jointly made programs. Okay, okay. Uh, but outside of those uh, <laughs> uh, smash international hits and the number of things produced by their public broadcaster, oh, the, okay. the ABC, okay. but the A stands for Australian this time, uh, and Claritic's favorite uh, television channel from when she was growing up is the Comedy Channel, which was almost entirely syndicated. Uh, it, it got rebroadcast rights from... From uh, all of the worthwhile comedy TV you can think of from uh, the United States and the UK. And, you know, syndicating a few uh, original Australian comedies as well. So she could grow up watching The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, Jay Leno, The Late Show, <laughs> Late Night. Which, those monologues must have been nonsense. Why did you care? What? I w- my family was big Jay Leno watchers. Yeah, but he was talking about things in your life, in yeah. your country. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the Comedy Channel brought uh, a national obsession to Australia, much in the way uh, Germany, uh, they, they can't get enough of that David Hasselhoff. Apparently, uh, unless I'm being lied to in this letter, Australia is head over heels for uh, whose line is it anyway? Oh, yeah. I love whose line is anyway. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Thank you very much, Claritic. Final Gamer uh, wrote in answering a couple of questions. Uh, first being favorite child actor, DeVay Chase, who was the voice of Lilo for in Lilo and Stitch, uh, and also the English voice dub for Shihiro uh, from Spirited Away. And Final Gamer goes on to say that uh, it was fantastic as Lilo and really, like, portrayed the character in a very realistic um, way, unlike how other, like, animated kids get portrayed. And Hard agree. Oh, yes. Lilo and Stitch is just an amazing movie. Yeah. In every way. And Lilo (laughs) is an amazing character. Most honest, like, representation of a child (laughs) in an animated film. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently, uh, this act- actor also, uh, played Samara Morgan, the ghost girl, uh, in the American remake of The Ring. <laughs> Around the same time. Around the same time, sure. Very, uh, talented and diverse actor there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wide range. Wide range. Uh, Final Gamer also answers his favorite TV channel and is going to go with the UK's Channel 4, which started in 1982. Uh, this channel is... Known, unfortunately, for shows like Starting Big Brother and other reality TV shows of that time. Um, but it also was one of the first channels to bring American sitcoms like Will and Grace, Friends, and The Simpsons uh, to the UK. 
Um, and what separates it from other channels to this day is that it kind of stood out, stood out as like the controversial channel. It was mm-hmm. the first to have a gay TV drama in the UK, uh, with Queer as Folk. Great show. Uh, became the f- official sponsor for the Paralympics and always constantly raised awareness for disabilities. One of the, uh, few channels to have both itself and all four of its other related channels to be 100% subtitled, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Its program, Dispatches, uh, deals with a lot of current affairs and undercover investigations, uh, including the Cambridge analytical scandal which uh they were the ones responsible for publicly exposing another thing that some of our other listeners might want to know Ch- channel four was the original home of whose line is it anyway yeah there. <laughs> there's a transition there yeah. Yeah, there's a gradient segue uh so final camera goes on to say that uh, a lot of people in the uk tend to think of channel four as being the you know big brother reality trash channel but it's done a lot more um, and has its hand in supporting a lot of causes, mm-hmm. which is pretty great. Thanks so much for writing, Final Gamer. Ian writes in, and their favorite TV station is their local PBS affiliate, yeah. KCTS9 in Seattle. Okay, that is the one that Niles Crane watches. Just <laughs> <laughs> Ian did write in previously about Lamb Chop's Play Along, but I mean, so many other shows, Sesame Street, Magic School Bus, oh, and Wishbone. Yes! I mean... Both of those are so good. That segment of this episode could have gone on forever. Yes. <laughs> um, Anytime I see a dog that looks like Wishbone, I'm just like, Wishbone dog! They're called Jack Russell Terriers. No, it's a Wishbone dog! You know who else has one? Niles Crane's dad. <laughs> Wishbone dog! <laughs> KCTS would also uh, overnight show things like Red Green uh, and the Skiat and Seattle's own uh, almost live uh, skit comedy show, which is where uh, uh, Bill Nye was performing and got the Science Guy nickname. Nice. Mm-hmm. And Ian has been a-, a supporter of public broadcasting any given time. They have the means because it provides an excellent service. And here's a PS. Mm-hmm. I know you love PSs. Yeah, I love PSs. I love when people use them. Ian's going to be traveling here and wants to uh, see how Seattle's weird regional food compares to ours. Have we ever had cream cheese on a hot dog? I haven't, but I'm pretty sure that hot dog place on Fullerton that we really like oh, serves that. They probably do I on think, one of them. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they have... Do a cream cheese so, hot dog thing. Go to Victory Gardens Theater, the old biograph, where... Uh, Don, John Dillinger was shot just outside of it. Yeah, and around the corner from there is a teeny tiny hot dog stand. They they might give you the hookup. Yeah. If not, <laughs> For a little can, taste of home, if, I guess. If not, you can just get a bacon sausage. Yeah, or kangaroo sausage or whatever their, their rotating mm-hmm. weird meat of the month is. Yeah. Frips. They're not <laughs> chips. They're not fries. But they are made with an electric power drill. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Uh, Sam wrote in with their favorite channel, uh, currently being NBC, because they saved Brooklyn 999 after Fox canceled it. Uh, favorite child star is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. All the ladies go, oh! <laughs> Sam goes on that he was 
basically the first wonder wonderkind of the music world, traveling all over Europe, meeting heads of state, stealing Vatican secrets. Because apparently there was a piece of music that was sung at the Vatican that was so closely guarded that, like, you couldn't take sheet music anywhere or you'd be, like, excommunicated. But Mozart heard it and then, like, transcribed it and then, you know, spread it around. Uh, You can't stop the single man. No. Information wants to be free. Uh, Sam also brings up Mozart's sister, uh, Nan Earl, uh, who traveled with him and played at the same concerts, uh, but was mostly ignored in history. Uh, she was five years older than Mozart, and he idolized her musical abilities. Um, but her career ended when she became an adult and got married and followed behind her husband, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it is a one-two punch that like the patriarchy of the day uh, stopped her career. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, this is the first I've heard of her, so I don't know if she was like I had not heard of her either. cool with that or like would like to have continued. I don't know, but also the the patriarchy of the historical record for not telling that story. Yeah, <laughs> and cer- certainly you can go your entire life knowing a lot about Mo- Mozart and not a, a dang thing about Ninerl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know. I did not know. And then Sam also mentions uh, Girl Scout cookies. That a lot of people have been chiming in about the lemonades and agrees that they are delicious. All right, uh, fine. Next but, spring, we're adding a lemonade to our <laughs> order. Get off my back. Uh, well, apparently they're like the Oreos lemon cookies, but you know has a more solid lemon frosting on the outside. Uh, so I guess like if you really want to try one, we could just track down those Oreos in the meantime. Eat one and just like imagine. Yeah. Okay. Be like, okay, yeah, I'll buy a box next time. <laughs> I think I'd rather just buy the box because then I'm a getting the real thing. Uh huh. And if I don't like it, then my money went to the Girl Scouts and it's not true. to Nabisco. It's true. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing saying you can't do both, but yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, Sam. And thanks to everybody who wrote in. That's all the letters we have for today. If you would like to drop us a line, uh, where do those go? Podcast at gmail.com. And that's where we want to hear your show suggestions, your stories, your, your corrections, uh, anything you might like to have shared with the whole audience, including uh, your responses to our regular prompt. So, dear, what would you like to hear for next episode? Uh, our prompt for next time is what is your favorite mode of air travel? Yeah. What's your favorite way to fly? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I mean, there's the one big one. There's lots of other options, actually. That's very true. Uh, so again, those can go to... HistoryHoneysPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, while you're out there uh, uh, getting in touch with us that way, why not help us get in touch with others? A rating and review goes so, so far to helping our show grow and succeed. Yes. Uh, every five stars we get on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc. Uh, you know, it, it just it makes the stars twinkle in my eyes. Yeah, yeah. makes my heart sing. <laughs> ah. It's very quiet because it's coming from my heart. Yeah, it's it has muffled. to come. Yeah, it's muffled through okay. bone and stuff. You can also oh. tell a friend. <laughs> yeah, word of mouth really uh, helps. Word of mouth really helps other people find us. Uh, helps you connect with other people about things you like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So 
Tell those people. Tell your barista. I mean, 80% of our American listeners will have something to reminisce about in this episode. Yes. <laughs> and so will their, their friends and, and people who live on the Canadian border. Yes. Yes. I watched a lot of Canadian television as yes. a child as well. Yes. Windsor 9, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> for, a, for There was a short time we were getting more Canadian stations than American stations on our TV because mm-hmm. of, like, the cloud coverage for, like, a month or something. It was very bizarre. You can also get in touch with us on, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at History Honeys. And we're going to have a lot to talk about in the upcoming days because, like I said at the beginning of the episode, yes. we are just a few short weeks from Gextra Life 3 heading into the media dimension. Yeah. Uh, 24 hours, look for the links, look for the promos, look for the prizes that we're going to be randomly Ooh. giving away to donors, and know that every dollar you give is helping Hurley Children's Hospital in Flint, Michigan, helping some sick kids who could definitely use a leg up. Yep. Uh, our first year's donations built an exam room, mm-hmm. which is incredible. And our second year's went to uh, building a, a place for the kids to relax and have fun and not think about how sick they are for a while. Mm-hmm. Place to just be a kid. Uh, some quality of life in the children's hospital. Uh, and they did name that the media dimension. <laughs> I forgot about yes, that. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, who knows what will happen you know, after this year. The, I mean, the the more we raise with your help, the more help we can provide uh, a very worthy cause. Yeah. They don't even have a home PBS station anymore. Maybe, maybe. They are, they are covered by Lansing, they are covered by Detroit, but they lost their home station. They did. We will see you in two weeks. Yeah. I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And history's better with, with your, your honey. honey.